Everybody's finding their seats. Let me remind you that this Sunday is the Sunday before Christmas, and so we are going to have our uh, Christmas service, and we'll have communion Sunday as well. And then on um, Tuesday night, there will not be Bible class. Somebody asked me the yes, uh, Tuesday night or yesterday morning. Something about, I'll be, see you at Bible class Tuesday night. They were sitting here Tuesday night when I said there will not be Bible class Tuesday night. Okay. That's what makes me wonder. Sometimes I hear people repeat back what they thought I taught. And what they thought I taught had nothing at all to do with what I, th- what I taught. So there's something that happens. Yeah. It gets, it gets reversed. So it's... Um, it's funny how that happens. So um, anyhow, so there, then there will be Bible class on the night of New Year's on January 1st, not New Year's Eve, January 1st, there will be Bible class that Tuesday night. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can be spiritually prepared to study the word, to worship as we study the word, to put our focus and attention on the Lord as we're walking by the Spirit, that God the Holy Spirit will make clear to us the understanding of the Scripture and also make clear to us where we need to apply it. I want to say something about that. When When we pray that God the Holy Spirit will make it clear to us, he doesn't instantly make it clear to us. You may have to hear it 50 or 100 times before it finally becomes clear to you. If you think it's a one-shot deal, you're a mystic and you're really out of bounds. It is a lifelong pursuit. And there are some doctrines you might catch right away and some things that it may take you 20 years before you have that aha moment. But all through along the way, God the Holy Spirit is working to make it, make it clear to you. And if it's going to take you 20 years before you understand what it means, think about how much longer it may take before you figure out that it's you that it's talking about and you need to apply it. So when, when we pray for the Holy Spirit to make it clear to us, don't get confused and distracted into thinking this is a one-shot event. It is a lifetime. That's what the spiritual life is all about. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Uh, Father, it's just such a great joy that we can come together and study your word, that we can be enlightened by the truth of your word, that we have absolute truth in front of us that tells us how things actually are as you created them and as they were defiled and corrupted by sin and what your redemption solution is. And to understand that the things that we see, the things that we experience with our, with our senses doesn't tell the whole story that there is a realm beyond that, an invisible realm that, where there is a war raging in the heavenlies. And we are a part of that. And so often we forget and we think in, um, just in terms of the empirical data in front of us and not in terms of the spiritual warfare that rages all around us. Father, open our eyes that we can understand your word, see its application, put these things together, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, and while you are turning there in the scriptures, I want you to think about a scenario. It's a cold and dark, windy night. You're sitting out, or maybe standing walking a perimeter. As you look up, you can't see the stars because they're shrouded by black clouds. The moon's light isn't shining because it's also blocked. You can hear noise near you, and it is the bleeding of the sheep, for you are a shepherd. And it's your job to watch over and protect the sheep at night. Tonight it seems like there's a, an expected danger. The sheep are restless. They're making various sounds and they're moving around. And you know that there must be at least one predator nearby. Perhaps it's a bear. Maybe it's a wolf. And, of course, the worst-case scenario is there's a lion out there. Now, you don't know if there's a lion out there. But you know that if there is and it's nearby, you could be the victim just as much as the sheep. So you have to be very careful. You have to be watchful. You have to be on the alert because at any moment there's going to be an assault and you need to be prepared. You've trained for this. You know exactly what the drills are. That's the scenario, the metaphor that is behind what we're reading in this section of First uh, Peter chapter 5, when Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a lying, lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's the scenario. Earlier in the chapter, it's addressed to church leaders, but it's also been addressed to the younger ones that are in the congregation to obey the authority of those who have charge over them. And we're all in that same spiritual scenario. We are all like the sheep in the pen that could be attacked viciously at any moment, and we need to be prepared for it. What, what happens so often, though, is we just live our life as if we're blissfully ignorant that this is true. But this is what Peter brings to our attention as we get into this last closing section before we get into the conclusion of the epistle. And so we're going to be studying for several weeks Satan, suffering, and spiritual warfare. Recently, I had a conversation with a f close friend who's also a pastor, 
and we were discussing some of the different things that we've been reading and listening to and hearing from uh, even a lot of believers dealing with the the cultural changes and problems that we all face, we're all aware of, in, in our country. And we've heard outstanding talks and lectures by great speakers. But it seems that one thing that is often left out is fitting it, fitting the, the problem and the solution within this broader issue of what we call the angelic conflict or spiritual warfare or the invisible war, as Barnhouse put it when he titled his book. But there is a reality that we are very much a part of that reality. And as Peter is addressing this congregation or these various uh, Jewish background believers who are facing opposition, they're facing ridicule, they're facing uh, various levels of, of disrespect and rejection, from friends, from family, and from, of course, the, uh, the Gentile community, that he now comes to the end of this epistle where he's been talking about suffering and adversity since the very beginning, and he puts it within that ultimate context of spiritual warfare. And we'll see that when we come down to, uh, come down to verse, t verse 10. So... Just to remind you, verse 5 through 7, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to the elders. And, and it's interesting that all through this epistle, again and again and again, as I pointed out, there's this command to various groups of individuals to submit to authority. And we ask ourselves, why does the Bible make such a big issue about submitting to authority? It's because the original sin of the universe, Satan's original sin, was rebellion against the authority of God. Authority was there in perfect environment. We live in a world of antinomianism today. We see it on every corner. We have antinomianism in academia. We have antinomianism in Congress. We have antinomianism in the White House. We have antinomianism on the streets of so many, uh, so many cities. Nobody wants to play by the rules anymore unless, of course, uh, you're in sports, and then you're forced to by excessive penalties. But that's the, that's the trend of our culture since the end of World War II. It's become progressively, progressively worse. And, and this is a reflection of the ultimate thinking of Satan, the world, worldliness. It reflects his, his thinking, and his thinking is that God doesn't have the right to rule his creation. I can do it better. It is a rejection of authority. So we have this as an ultimate test in our spiritual life. You know that you have real problems with authority at times, and I know that I have real problems with authority at times, and that's a manifestation of our sin nature that wants us to be God. This is one of the problems I think Lewis Berry Chafer identified it very well. He said, if you look around you, all of the chaos, the poverty, the wars, uh, the, the creation itself that is uh, falling apart at times through various weather disasters and earthquakes and volcanoes and all of these things are just a sign that Satan really can't control the kingdom that he wants to control. He is the 
God of this age. He is the head of this kingdom. He's usurped it from Adam back in Genesis chapter 3, and he is the upstart rebel king, and he can't run his kingdom. God's demonstrating to him that he, no creature ha that is limited in knowledge, power, and presence can do it. Satan still thinks he can. He's not omniscient, and he's not omnipresent. So this issue of authority is foundational to the spiritual life. And so uh, Peter says, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. That's the opposite of anything Satan has, has to do with. Quoting from uh, Proverbs 3, uh, 32 or 34, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time by casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. That took us through that section, and then there is a final exhortation. This comes very forcefully at the end of this epistle by the way it is set up. Peter just says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, and it's a causal participle there, because you know reminding him of them of what they've been taught, that the same sufferings are experienced by your uh, brotherhood in the world. And so what we see as we get here is that there are three commands in this section, five, uh, five, nine through 10. And I mean, five, eight through 10. There are these three commands and they are, first of all, to be sober, which doesn't mean to abstain from alcoholic beverages. It means don't have your thinking clouded by false doctrine, by wrong thinking, by a non-biblical worldview. Don't dwell in the fantasy world of the pagans and the culture around you that wants to believe that, that, that life can be lived apart from God and that we can find a measure of real happiness and stability in life apart from the Word of God and, part, and apart from a relationship with God. That's what it means to be sober. It is to be clear-headed, to think accurately on the basis of reality. And then the second command is uh, Gregoreo. And this, too, is they're, they're all aorist imperatives, which means they need to be a priority. He's really punching this. Uh, if he were writing this today, he, it would, he would be putting an exclamation point and maybe bold-facing each of these commands. The second one is to be alert, be awake, be vigilant, uh, be watchful, look out for what may come, and be ready at any moment. It is like a soldier who is walking the perimeter and he's responsible for a patrol that is deep in enemy territory, and so he has to listen, he has to pay attention, because he knows that at any moment an attack can come out of the dark uh, without, uh, without warning. So he has to be vigilant. That's the idea here. And then that is followed by the state statement, uh, that is, if you're using a King James or you're using a new King James, it says because. That is added later. It's only in the Textus Receptus. Remember, the Textus Receptus is a subset 
a subcategory within what's called the majority text. Majority text includes thousands of manuscripts. The TR, the Textus Receptus, refers to a set of Greek manuscripts, all that was known at the time, that was between eight and ten manuscripts that formed the basis of one of the first printed and distributed Greek New Testaments by Erasmus in the early uh, 1500s. That later expanded, but that was the basis for the translation of the King James and the New King James. Uh, there were there are a lot of textual problems with those manuscripts. They weren't. They were much much later. Now later, there were many other manuscripts within that family of manuscripts that were found, and they they were m- more correct, much more correct than the than the TR. But the TR, uh, some scribe decided, okay, we we need to clarify this a little bit. So he inserted because, but that is not in. The critical text, which is the view that the older is better, it's not in the majority text. It's only in about about 10 or 12 uh, manuscripts that aren't that old to, to begin with. So you take that, it's a staccato here. Uh, be sober, be vigilant. The, um, your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion it, 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 at this as he comes to this end coming to the conclusion he he heightens the tension here uh giving a uh giving these uh, tactical commands for the believer now another thing i want to observe is that because every now and then i hear this that people get the wrong idea of what legalism is legalism is not insisting that there are absolutes that every believer is obligated to follow that is not legalism because the New Testament is filled with all kinds of commands for every believer and most of them or many of them come from the pen of the Apostle Paul who's the Apostle of Grace. Legalism is the idea that I curry favor with God on the basis of my behavior. That's legalism, that somehow I can be better than others because I'm more obedient and I follow uh, certain traditions. That's legalism. Uh, grace is the idea that everything I have comes from God, but with that which he gives us, there are obligations. For example, if I were to uh, give you a house, let's say I had the ability to do that and I gifted you with a $500,000 home, I may not have any strings attached to it, You may have the title deed with your name on it, but you're still responsible for the upkeep. You have to take care of it. You have to replace things as they break down. You have to repair things as they break down. You have to cut the grass. You have to paint the walls. You have to do this. You have to do that because that's the responsibility of a homeowner. So a believer has been given a new life, but you have a responsibility to nourish that life to take in the word of God, to develop your and, and maintain your relationship with God, which is identified as walking, walking by the spirit, uh, walking in the light, walking in the truth. All of those relate to the spiritual life, the spiritual walk of, of the believer. So the commands define the behavior and the actions of a believer. Uh, they are the standards by which all saints should be known. And so they're not options any more than the ten suggestions, uh, ten commandments are options. 
okay? They are, they are mandates from God. And so this is a serious warning, and, and the grammar just highlights that because there is so much at stake and, and uh, so much is dependent upon our obedience because we do not want to become victims and, and filling the um, uh, appetites, satisfying the appetites of Satan in his rebellion uh, against the Lord. So the first two are so close together, they can be taken as almost synonymous, just a quick repetition of ver- almost the same, the same point, and that is to really pay attention, to be alert, to think clearly, to know what you're doing, know your, your job and your responsibilities. And then at the beginning of verse 9, we have our third command, which is to resist him. This is an extremely important w- word, and a word that we find again and again and again, and it means to stand your ground. It means to it's to take up a defensive posture. Now we have uh, laws that are that have been passed. Uh, Texas is one of them. Many other states have a stand your ground law, and what this basically means is if your uh, home or your possessions, and that home is really defined as where you live and should have a sense of security. It has been interpreted to be inside your car. It's been interpreted to be inside of your motel room or hotel room. Uh, And if that is where you are abiding at the time and your life is threatened, then you have a right to defend it and take the life of somebody who is threatening, uh, threatening your life. That's what stand your ground means. It's a defensive Maneuver, but a defensive maneuver often involves a a counter movement that has an offensive element to it. That means it involves an attack on those who are attacking us, but it is defensive. And so we see this illustrated in Christ when he is being tempted by the devil in Matthew uh, Matthew chapter uh, chapter four. Matthew chapter 3, when um, he's, the devil takes him into the wilderness and the devil tempts him and Jesus counters with scripture. So it's it just like in fencing, you counter, but it is also a move where you counter and counterattack at the same time. So that is the idea in anthistomy. It's not going after Satan, not saying, oh, I'm going to stomp on the devil. I'm going to take dominion over the devil. And there are a lot of people who use really bad vocabulary that came out of this whole mystical neo-spiritual warfare heresy that came out of the charismatic movement in the uh, 60s and, and following. So these are the three main commands, and I'll say some more about them uh, as we go forward. Uh, all of this is to warn you and me about the problem of, of, uh, of spiritual warfare and what is going on here. But what we, I want to draw our attention to next is what Peter says in verse 10. He says, But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered for a little while. And that's the phrase I want to bring to your attention. He says, he talks about the glory of Christ and to him be the glory. So that's a key word that we see here 
But he says, after you suffered a little while. What has Peter been talking about through the last four chapters? Suffering, suffering, adversity, how to handle suffering. And so now what Peter is saying is that God is going to allow you, this is part of God's permissive will, to suffer for a little while. It's on this earth. Compared to eternity, it's, it's like a molecule of H2O in the oceans. It is almost nothing. And yet when we're in the midst of it, it seems like it's everything and it surrounds us. So this fits perfectly within the theme and the structure of this, this epistle. Now, I want you to pay attention to a couple of things about here, uh, about this particular phrase, and understanding uh, how to think about suffering. We've covered this a number of times in the past, that there's basically two broad categories of suffering. We either suffer, suffer because we deserve it, or we suffer because we don't deserve it. It's pretty simple. One or the other. Either we deserve it or we don't deserve it. Under the category of deserved suffering, that's the suffering that comes our way because we have made bad choices. We have made bad decisions. We have disobeyed Scripture. We've let our sin nature run away with us, and now we are reaping what we have sowed. Reaping what we have sowed simply states the natural consequences to sinful decisions. But God comes along sometimes and he enhances those natural negatives, those natural consequences with divine discipline. So sometimes he allows the discipline to simply be the negative consequences that, that result from our bad decisions. And sometimes he says, well, I've got to turn the heat up just a little bit more to maybe get your attention. So that's a d deserved suffering. It's self-induced misery. It's our own fault because we have disregarded, disobeyed uh, what the Word of God says. We're living in that uh, fantasy world of the unbeliever that, that uh, we really get away with this and it really doesn't matter. But we all face undeserved suffering. And we witness undeserved suffering. And this is one of the things that is often an issue for, as we're told, the uh, millennial generation. They look out there and they are very concerned there seems to be injustice in the world, that there are uh, some people who are rich and some people who are poor, some nations that are rich and some people that are poor, and often in these types of scenarios, what we have is simplistic solutions to an extremely complex issue. Often the causes of that poverty or that injustice are, are, are not addressed. But they just want to throw money at it. They, they want to somehow take away from those who have worked hard and made good decisions and are enjoying the blessing that God promised them and many of those people are indeed using that which God has given them to bless others. They just don't make a show about it. And so out of ignorance, there are those who say, well, we need to just take the money away from them and give it to those who uh, are going through this suffering. The problem is the reason they're going through the suffering is because they've made bad decisions and they, don't, uh, they haven't understood 
why they've made bad decisions, and they're going to continue to make foolish and bad decisions and waste whatever money is distributed to them. And so when you have oversimplistic uh, interpretations of scenarios, then you have oversimplistic uh, solutions. Uh, uh, undeserved suffering can come from a number, uh, a number of reasons. First of all, in light of what I just said, it might not be undeserved, okay? It might be deserved because you have a, an individual or a culture that is in rebellion against God in some way or, or another. So that would take us back into that first category. But let's say it's truly undeserved suffering, that the person has done absolutely nothing whatsoever uh, to... Uh, bring about what they're going through. And we see examples of this many, many different, different ways. Uh, I came to grips with this as a young, young boy because my mother was stricken with polio uh, when she was a little bit less than eight months pregnant with me. She was seven months pregnant with me. And she had done nothing to deserve polio. She hadn't gone into some polio ward and walked through there as if she was immune to the disease. She had not done anything that might necessarily entail getting stricken with that. And there were so many here. She got hit with polio in the last great outbreak of, uh, epidemic of polio, which occurred right here in Harris County, was the center of the last epidemic that occurred in 1952. And there were... Uh, numerous people who got polio, some of them weren't stricken very hard, some of them died, and so this was uh, this was a scary thing back then. We don't have polio today, uh, and it doesn't, um, uh, and so people don't understand the fears that went on at that time, that you could be living your life, you're walking with the Lord, you're going to church, you're doing everything you think of that's right, and then boom. You're down with something terrible. You did not, You weren't guilty of irresponsible behavior to catch it or anything like that. So we have this undeserved suffering. And one of the reasons we have it is, and this would apply to my mother's situation and to many others, is that we live in the devil's world. We live in a world that has uh, been corrupted by sin. And so there is uh, disease, there's illness, there's famines, there's wars, there's natural disasters such as hurricanes and earthquakes and volcanoes and all kinds of things like that that seriously impact people's lives. There are other things that go on because you live in the devil's world. You're just driving calmly down the street and somebody disobeys the law and they run a red light and they hit you and cause major medical problems for the rest of your life. These are, these are scenarios people face all the time. We have people in the congregation who face many of these kinds of things, and that's just because we live in a world that's, that has been corrupted and is under the uh, domination of the devil. Uh, also, and in some ways, part of that, some of these overlap, there's permissive suffering. God allows certain types of suffering to come into your life and my life because he is, he is teaching us something. He has allowed that because uh, in many ways I believe he lets a specific thing happen to me or to you 
because that's hitting us right at our soft spot where we are arrogant, where we're self-reliant, where we really need to learn to be dependent upon him. And so it's a test that is tailor-made for us to teach us to be dependent upon God in those particular areas. You can think of James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials because you know that the testing, every test is a testing of our faith, a doctrine, what we believe. The testing of your faith produces endurance. Romans 5, 3 through 5, you have a very similar order of events. And it is only through this process of going through testing, which challenges our ability so we have to trust God, that we learn to trust him and to mature uh, and to grow. So we also have suffering because we're associated with people who are going through deserved suffering. That may be uh, your spouse, and you may not even know it, but maybe you are someone, we can think of many different figures uh, in, the, uh, in our country, whether they're national political leaders or whether they're economic leaders, but they make certain decisions. Uh, let's say that's your spouse, and they are making decisions with regard to the company, and they're the CEO, and next thing you know, it, it's discovered that these were all bad decisions, the company collapses, everybody loses all of their jobs, loses their investments, loses their retirement, and it's all because of bad decisions made by your spouse. Now, you're suffering by association. You did nothing wrong, but somebody you're closely associated is going through deserved suffering. It may be a child. You may have a child that grows up and makes bad decisions, makes criminal decisions, makes decisions that are bad related to marriage, makes decisions that are bad related to finances, makes decisions that are bad related to education. And 10 years later, because you're a parent and you love them, now this is coming back on you and you need to help them and you're going to suffer along with them. There are a lot of ways in which we go through this. We can live in a nation and be a believer. Think about the number of truly Bible-based believers, evangelical believers like Plymouth Brethren, Brethren types, who were in Germany in the 30s. They saw it coming. They were trying to hide the Jews. They were trying to get out, all kinds of things, but you're stuck there. And now because your countrymen have made bad decisions at the voting booth, you are now under a tyrannical dictatorship and you're suffering by association. And that can happen in this country just as easily, maybe not as extreme, maybe more extreme. But we can all of a sudden find ourselves in horrible circumstances simply because the, those elected to public office are making uh, really bad decisions, and so we suffer as, as a result of that. But what we have to remember is any suffering that we go through, whether it is deserved or undeserved, whether it is something that God intentionally put into our life as divine discipline, or whether it is something that God is allowing permissively to shape us and to mold us and to teach us to trust him, Whatever the suffering is, maybe it's totally self-induced suffering. 
it can all be transformed into suffering for blessing. The prime example of this in the Bible is the episode of David. David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then when she becomes pregnant, he's going to cover it up. And so he calls on his, uh, his, his general to put, uh, put her husband, Uriah, up at the forefront of the battle so, so he will more than likely be killed. He doesn't want uh, to be found out. And so this is what happens. So he's guilty of, of uh, adultery, which is a capital crime under the Mosaic Law. He's guilty of conspiracy to commit murder, and that's a capital crime. He's, com- he's guilty of the cover-up, and that would also uh, be a capital crime. And so what happens? When God makes it clear to him through a little parable that Nathan the prophet presented to him, David is convicted of his sin, and he confesses his sin. That's Psalm 51. God, in his grace, commuted the sentence. It's not going to be a death penalty. But you're not getting off scot-free either. There are going to be four levels of divine discipline. The baby is going to die. You're going to have... Uh, one son who is going to uh, rape his half-sister. You're going to have a a brother uh, kill him, and you're going to have another son that is going to lead a rebellion against you. But because, because David had turned back to God and because he knew the word, he could trans, that, that suffering was transformed into blessing. You have Psalm Psalm 32, where he's praising God, and he is back walking with the Lord. God has answered his prayer, restored the joy of his salvation. So he is able now to face the suffering that he deserved, but now it's going to be suffering for blessing and not suffering for judgment, and he will grow and mature through that as God uh, demonstrates that he can take care of him even in those, those horrible circumstances. And we learn from other examples in David's life later on that that some of the suffering that he went through and that the nation went through because of his bad decisions was ultimately the result of a testing that was engineered uh, by Satan. So we see that that the suffering is very much a part of understanding what uh, Peter is saying when he says, "Be, be watchful, be alert. Uh, your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast or standing firm, uh, standing your ground in the faith because you know that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world, that we all go through similar sufferings in terms of their categories. They may not be identical in all of the all of the all of the various circumstances. Now, this is a context that is very similar to what Paul does in Ephesians. Peter goes through three or four and a half chapters before he mentions in just one verse the significance of the spiritual warfare. And he waits to the end to give us sort of the punchline of that which surrounds all of the problems that they're facing individually in their lives. We, I mentioned this same thing in the last, uh, uh, last lesson in Ephesians, 
that Paul waits until Ephesians 6.10 before he connects what he has said in terms of the Christian's position in Christ and the Christian's uh, walk in, in, in the Lord, and then he comes and he ties it to the uh, to spiritual warfare, and so that wraps it up at the end. And I wanted to just remind you of this in these in these uh, five verses, or the last verse is just the first part of it. Paul says to them, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So he's talking about a problem, and he tells them what the solution is. It's A, the power of God, and B, that they are to, put, that they are to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 12, he expands that. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Those refer to different ranks of the fallen angels, of the demons. So they're organized just as the holy or elect angels are organized. And then Paul concludes with the command in verse 13 to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And then he says in verse 14, stand therefore. Now, what do you think is the key word in these verses? It's that command to stand. Have we heard that before? Look at Peter. It says, resist him, 5-9. That's the same word. Uh, there's two forms of it. There's the prefixed form, me, the anti at the beginning just uh, intensifies the meaning of the main word, which is histemi, which means to stand, to hold your ground, to withstand or to resist. It's not, as I said earlier, a term describing uh, overt, uh, aggressive, offensive action. It's a defensive term. And either me or histemi is used in Ephesians 6, 10 through 14. Look at that, verse 11, to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 13, to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Ephesians six fourteen, stand therefore. And so again and again, we have this same principle. I want to note several similarities between Peter and Paul. Peter said to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and that was back in verse 6. The word translated mighty is the Greek word kratios. That is an adjectival form of a word that means has to do with power or might or strength. Paul in Ephesians 6 says that we are to uh, stand in the power of his might in verse 10. And the word there for power is kratos. Kratos here, kratios in Peter. So they're using the same vocabulary. Peter says that we're to be watchful and uses the Greek wor word gregoreo, whereas Paul uses a synonym and he says be watchful. 
Okay, be watchful in prayer. So they're both talking about being vigilant and ways to be vigilant. And in verse 18 of Ephesians 6, Paul says, be watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication. Peter warns that the unseen devil prowls about looking for someone to devour. And Paul warns that we fight not against flesh and blood, in verse 12, but against the rulers of darkness in the heavenlies that are, that are invisible. In both cases, we have invisible enemies. And then, of course, as I've just pointed out, Peter warns that we're to stand firm, and Paul warns that we are to stand firm. That is, uh, that is the solution. So now we need to look at what, uh, what Peter is introducing here in verse in verse 8, and that is that we face our adversary, the devil. And so I just want to run through this pretty quickly for you. The names of Satan. What do names tell us in the Bible? They tell us something about the character of the person. Now, we've gone over a lot of this before, so I'm going to move somewhat quickly. Uh, Lucifer, that's how people usually refer to the name of Satan before the fall. That was based on a translation in the Vulgate. The Hebrew phrase is Halel ben Shahar, which literally translated means shining one, son of the morning. Okay, so this is just a title for this, this creature uh, out of Isaiah 14, 12. The most common name that we have for Satan is the name Satan or Satan in the Hebrew. It's used 52 times, and it means adversary or opposer. Uh, one verse that uses this is Zechariah 3.1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, the accuser, standing at his right hand to oppose him. Now, in Jewish theology, in Judaism, there's no fallen angel, there's no Satan, as you and I think of Satan. There's just simply an angel who accuses God. He's sort of playing what we might call, no pun intended, the devil's advocate. Okay? But they don't believe in a personal devil or creature that is the antithesis of God who's seeking to overthrow him. That developed in rabbinical theology. It was not what was present prior to uh, the coming of Christ. The word devil, which is a word we find here, is used about 35 times from the Greek diabolos, and it means a slanderer or accuser. It's used in Matthew 4.1, the devil took Jesus, or the devil tempted Jesus, rather. Uh, Ephesians 4.27, Revelation 12.9, and 20, verse 2. Revelation 29, so 12.9, rather, so verse, we'll see several titles, the great dragon, the serpent of old, devil, and Satan. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan. Now, now what's funny is you don't see the connection drawn in Scripture between the serpent in the garden and the dragon and Satan until you get to Revelation 12.9. And I just, for the life of me, can't understand it that that you have a lot of scholars today that says, well, see, that serpent really... John Calvin was this way. He did not believe the serpent in the garden was anything more than a snake. Well, even if God doesn't make it clear in the, in the Scripture, 
they understood that. It was understood. This was, this was believed, even though it wasn't overtly identified in Genesis 3. But so, so people won't mistake it. At the end of the New Testament, God makes it very clear. That serpent back there, that was Satan. That was the devil. Okay, so don't miss it. So don't come along. You know, sometimes academicians have reached a, a, a level of their study where, where they will believe the most incredible things simply to make some sort of academic point. He's called the evil one. It's also translated, same words translated, the wicked one in John 17, 5, and 1 John 5, 18 to 19. John 17, 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So it identifies Satan as evil. It's a serpent, Genesis 3.1, also identified in Revelation 12.9, as I pointed out just a minute ago. It's called the great red dragon in Revelation 12.3, 12.7, and 12.9, which is a picture of his ferocity and fearsomeness. It's identified in 12.10, the next verse, as the accuser of the brethren. That's part of what it means to be diabolos. He's the accuser, the slanderer of the brethren. He's called the tempter in Matthew 4.3. The tempter came to Jesus and began to tempt him. He's also identified as the tempter in 1 Thessalonians 3.5. There are various titles that are given to him showing that he has real authority over this world system. He's called the ruler of this world in John 12.31. He's called the god of this world, or literally the god of this age, in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. He's also called in Ephesians 2.2 the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And he's called the deceiver of the whole world in Revelation 12.9 and 20, verse 3. Tenth, he's called the ruler of the demons in 1 John 4.4. 4. And Paul calls him Belial, uh, a source of disorder and chaos in 2 Corinthians 6.15. So that gives us an introduction. It gives us our exegesis, basically, of verses 8 through 10. And then we'll come back next time to start addressing specifically this question about what the Bible teaches about spiritual warfare, Satan, and suffering. Now, I'm going to close in prayer, but don't go anywhere. We're not done yet. Jeff is, uh, is going to come up. He gave us a... He went to Brazil... Uh, around Thanksgiving and over Thanksgiving while we were eating turkey. I don't know what he was eating, but he was having a glorious time teaching the word down there. And so he's going to come up and he's going to give us a report on his time in Brazil because he goes there, there as sort of our uh, traveling missionary, our ad hoc missionary from West Houston Bible Church and has had uh, a tremendous impact down there. So I'm going to close in prayer and then uh, just going to come up and uh, tell us about his trip. Father, thank you for this opportunity we've had to study the Word, to have our uh, mind uh, be reminded of the fact that we live in the midst of a, of a satanic rebellion. We have a target on our back, each and every one of us, whether we want to be obedient to you or disobedient, whether we're carnal or spiritual, Satan has us in his sights. And the only way we're going to survive with joy and stability is to get right with you, learn your word, and to be diligent and watchful and resist him. And that comes only on the basis of knowing your word. We have to know 
our weapons and use our weapons and defend ourselves the one and only way that you have authorized. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with all that we studied. In Christ's name, amen. I think Eddie wants you to use that. Let me unplug that. Okay. cleaning here. Good evening. You guys hear me? Hi, Ed. Oh, there we go. <laughs> uh, well, it's good to be home. Uh, Robbie's correct. Um, while everybody was eating Thanksgiving dinner here in the States, I was actually on a plane. We had a pretty good dinner on the plane, but uh, it wasn't like being home. But uh, we did go down to uh, Brazil. I think this was our seventh trip. Uh, spent... Uh, 12 days down there this time. I thought I'd give you guys kind of an overview of what's happened the last couple of years and then kind of narrow down what we're planning in the future, hopefully, with, uh, with Brazil. So um, maybe four years ago, 2014, I think, uh, I met uh, Jim Myers here at church, and uh, he knew that I had been associated with DM2, ministries we've been doing some work locally and he asked me if I wanted to come down to Brazil to uh, help him teach in the town of Natal and so accepted his invitation um, went down there and, and through a mutual friend um, I, I met a group a, a missionary group down there called light in action and uh, they kind of befriended me it was really that friendship that kind of blossomed into what I've done or this church has done uh, there in Brazil. Um, Light in Action and their team, uh, they had been there for about eight years uh, before, and uh, they were producing a video called uh, Tetelestai. Um, it's an 11-part series, very good uh, uh, presentation of the gospel, walking you through the Old Testament. But as a product of making this video, they had made all kinds of associations there in town in Natal and the surrounding areas with pastors and churches. And so it was a perfect inroad to uh, really kind of open some doors for me. So we, uh, we made, uh, thanks, John. We made some, uh, they made some introductions, and we went back and uh, we did uh, our first solo uh, trip was in October of 2015. We went and taught Romans 1 through 8. 
um, at a church. And then from there going forward, we've we've gone twice a year. Uh, with the exception of this year, I had a, a surgery that knocked me out for a little while. But um, anyway, let's um, let's talk about uh, Brazil, the country, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, what we're doing there. Um, Brazil, over the last 50 years, has really seen a big change. Uh, the early 1970s, uh, Catholic Church was probably about 92% of the population. Um, that uh, that has shifted uh, over to the evangelicals now. Uh, evangelicals make up um, just roughly 28% of the population. So across this 50 years, the Catholic Church has shrunk to about 60 65%. Evangelicals have grown up to around 25, 30%, depending on what numbers and what years you look at. Now, uh, evangelical, we're talking about a lot of different churches. You know, we've got uh, the uh, the Baptist churches, Pentecostals, Adventist, Lutheran, Reformed, Methodist, uh, Neo-Pentecostals, uh, the Prosperity folks. Uh, they're all kind of fallen under that umbrella. And we've had... Uh, we probably had one from each in at least one of our conferences. But I think uh, for the most part we get uh, the Brethren. Uh, we get a lot of folks from the Reformed Church. Uh, we get a lot of folks from the Pentecostal Church that uh, come and join us uh, when we do our teaching. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about the teaching in just a second. But a little more about Brazil. Um, some of you, I'm sure, have been keeping up with the news, so you may know this. But uh, Benjamin Netanyahu will be doing uh, a visit there. I think it's in January. Um, I think he gets there December 27th, stays through January 1st. And this is uh, actually the first time a sitting prime minister from Israel has visited uh, the state of Brazil. So that's kind of an interesting development. Um, Brazil is moving its embassy from in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem thought that was a very interesting piece of news, and partly uh, because of the recent election, which was uh, Jair uh, Bolsonaro. Uh, he's a populist who was elected to be president, and uh, he's very pro-life, pro-gun, pro-business, and pro-Israel. And so this would be uh, similar to, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan getting elected to uh, the governor of, be the governor of Illinois. Um, or some other, let's, New York, maybe that's even a little more liberal. Uh, this was a really amazing thing that happened um, in Brazil with uh, President Bolsonaro. It's, it'll remains to be seen what impact this will have on uh, Brazil and, uh, and the church in Brazil. But uh, one of the big things uh, that stands out in my mind is uh, Bolsonaro is very pro-Israel. Um, he's also very pro-gun. Um, and and uh, Brazil has a, a, a tremendous problem with crime, um, and it's largely largely due to the fact that uh, citizens have a very difficult time arming themselves. So there's a lot of hope there. Uh, a couple other things just uh, noteworthy. Um, the uh, Marcelo Crivella is an evangelical who was elected to be the mayor of Rio de Janeiro, uh, one of the largest cities in uh in Brazil, and uh, he is a staunch Christian Zionist. And again, uh, in the city of Brazil, uh, in the city of Rio de Janeiro, to be elected 
as an evangelical and as what maybe we wouldn't call conservative here in America, but what's conservative in Brazil uh, is very interesting. So those are some of the uh, developments in, in Brazil in general that to me, there's some significant trends happening here. We don't know what they're gonna mean for the future, but I, I think we see this impact that God's word is having on the population and we're seeing a little bit of that overflow into some of the politics and some of the elections that occur, some of the relationships that Brazil's making. So very interesting things. Um, let's talk about uh, where you guys send me. So um, how good is this map up here? So you can see right over here is the city of Natal. Um, and it is in the uh, state of Rio Grande do Norte, which is up here on the northeast corner of Brazil. Okay, so this is kind of that whole state that you see in this cutout right here. This is the city Natal. Uh, in order to get there, I fly from Houston all the way down here to Sao Paulo, and then I catch a flight from Sao Paulo uh, all the way up to... Uh, Natal. Uh, Natal is an international airport, um, and if they open that up, it'll be like a six-and-a-half-hour flight direct from Houston to Natal. So if you guys want to put anything on your prayer list, and it's a long haul to go down to Sao Paulo and then make the connection and then back up to Natal. It takes about a day-and-a-half of traveling, and it'd be really nice to whittle that down to about uh, five or six hours. But uh, so this is uh, this is where we go. Um, we'll talk about a few other cities in the Natal area uh, that we visited. So uh, what do we do uh, when we go? Uh, as most of you know, uh, several of you have been here for a while, but uh, we try to go teach a book of the Bible each time. Uh, we've done uh, Romans 1 through 8 uh, twice. We've done uh, Galatians three times. Uh, Panorama of the Old Testament twice. And uh, so these are curriculums that are produced uh, by uh, DM2 Ministries. Uh, some of them are written by uh, Brett Nasworth. Some of them are written by Clay Ward. Um, some are written by, um, sorry, it's slipping my mind, but he's in uh, the Ukraine right now, not Jim. But uh, anyway, another pastor from the uh, conference. And... Um, so we take these, the, the way these curriculums are set up, you have a teacher version and you have a, uh, a student version. The teacher version, uh, or the student version has uh, every couple of lines, it'll have uh, a word missing. Teacher version obviously has that word and students have to fill this in. And, and really the, the, the design behind this uh, word is really to keep them engaged with the material. A lot of times we're in a conference and we'll do uh, maybe six hours on Saturday, you know, one hour with 10 minute break, one hour, 10 minute break, one hour, 10 minute break. And when you're moving through that much material that quickly, those missing words really keep the audience engaged with the materials. So, um, so we take that down. Um, we try to get through a book each time we go, uh, this, depending on how well the classroom is, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. Sometimes we have to slow down because people get really engaged in what we're talking about. Um, we kind of go ahead and dig deeper instead of trying to push through a, 
Uh, and I'll give you an example of what happened in Galatians. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about uh, the translations, uh, not interpretation, but translation. The, uh, the, we've got translations in work. We just finished Colossians. Uh, we have 1 Corinthians that is in work, and Life of Christ and Daniel are up in the queue. And these are being done by uh, Marilia, who's been with us from the beginning. Uh, she, I met her down there on our first trip. And she started off as an interpreter, uh, helping me teach, and uh, now she's transitioned into, uh, she's been married, she married a, uh, uh, a reformed pastor, but we'll forgive her. He's a good guy. Um, but uh, she just got recently married, so uh, now she's just doing strictly translating work. Um, if you guys would remember her in your prayers, I would appreciate it. She's a huge part of what we're doing. A very good translator um, and just a real blessing uh, in a lot of ways down there in Brazil. Let's talk uh, a little bit about our classes. So typically we run uh, 50, 60 to about 100 students uh, that would show up. Uh, sometimes we've had 200 uh, but that's typically somewhere between 60 and 100, and then uh, we'll have live stream set up, and live stream we usually get between 150 to 300 people, um, and so it's you know very encouraging. Uh, the average age for attendance is 24, uh, which is really neat. Um, it, it the uh, the younger generation there in Brazil has really taken uh, a liking to God's word, and uh, they absolutely. You know, I talked about going through six, seven, eight hours a day. We'll literally be at the end of a Saturday, and we started, let's say, at 8 in the morning, and now it's 9 o'clock at night. We've been teaching all day. We took a break for lunch and bathroom breaks and all, but all day we've been teaching, and they want to keep going. <laughs> and so uh, they really have a hunger for the Word, um, and, and it's very, very encouraging to see. And, and again, we're talking uh, the the mean age there is 24 years old. You know, we have some that are 16. We have some that are, are 30. But uh, they all, the common ground we meet on is God's word. So many times we'll get the comments uh, from folks is that, um, wow, I didn't know the Bible could be taught this way or uh, my church doesn't do this. I'm going to take this back to my pastor and give it to him. And so we're always encouraged to hear things like that. We do get... Uh, a lot of denominations in our classes. We get Catholics, Baptists, Pentecostals, um, get the Lutheran, the Reformed. We've had Methodist folks there. But again, everything, um, we've, well, with a few exceptions, I've had a couple of uh, Pentecostals that had some moments when we were teaching, and which was very interesting. But, you know, you kind of go with the flow, and I got out a few amens with them, and they sat down finally, so... We just kept on trucking, but uh, they, everyone, uh, there have been a few exceptions where there have been a few disagreements, uh, but nothing uh, has ever occurred in the classroom. It's always been something that we've discussed afterwards, and it's always been very respectful, uh, kind of under the umbrella of love. Um, with those exceptions, uh, everybody's received this verse-by-verse -verse teaching that's in these curriculums with open hearts and tremendous excitement. 
and always encouraged to either go study it themselves or to take it back to their pastor and hand it off. We've had, we know of five churches now that have taken the curriculums and the pastor is teaching through them verse by verse. Um, we've been able to make some connections with uh, Professor uh, Mondegran, uh, who teaches at Schaefer Seminary. He's come over and taught his hermeneutics course. Um, it, with this last trip, we had about 30 pastors that attended the course. Um, the uh, He's coming back in June of 2019. We think right now it looks like we're going to have about 100. So that's something to be praying about. Don't know what they do with the Hermes course afterwards, but they're there, they're willing to learn, and they're, they're learning how to study the Word. So very encouraging. Um, let's talk a little bit, just uh, some of the friends and some of the fellowship that we've had there um, up here. Uh, this is uh, something you need to check your shoes for every morning uh, when you go. If you can't, oh, you can't see it, uh, the mouse. But over that center picture, just under fellowship, that's a tarantula on the wall. And they, they like to stay warm inside your shoes. So one of the morning rituals is you just shake your shoe out, and they don't, once they fall out on the ground, they don't bother you. They just scurry off, and you know it's not like they hit the ground and attack you. But you definitely don't want to put your shoe on with one of them in there. I'm not sure what will happen uh, but, uh, you know, just some pictures here, if you, uh, to your left, my right, on the screen here is Pastor Heberto in the purple shirt. This is Claudia. Uh, she was, attended our Galatians class. Pastor Heberto is uh, the president of the mission that we taught at. He's also the president of the seminary at that mission. And then over in the corner in the red shirt is uh, Eliel. Um, and Eliel is, there we go, this is Eliel right here. Uh, Eliel is uh, a pastor that I work with, a uh, relationship that I developed through uh, Jim Myers, um, and he helps me uh, teach when I'm down there. And I'm hoping to have him come over uh, for the uh, Schaefer Conference and talk to you guys. But we stay together and teach together and just have a lovely time uh, when we go over. This uh, is a picture of uh, Pastor Leandro. This is myself looking uh, very studious, and then this is Dalton, and I think in this picture we're actually making plans here. This was last year. We were making plans for uh, Professor Ray uh, to come over and teach uh, the pastors, uh, so very, doing that over breakfast, very exciting. Uh, you can see down here in the uh, far left-hand corner, Claudio and I got uh, to a theological disagreement she is an MMA fighter, by the way, um, and I lost, obviously. But uh, then uh, the man in the red hat is Pastor Celso. Uh, Pastor Celso, uh, we'll talk about him in just a minute, but uh, he's pastor of a brethren church there. He's very solid uh, in the word, and um, he has a vision for uh, building a seminary in Natal. So we have been talking about that um, I know it's getting late, so let me uh, push through this real quick. All right, let's talk about uh, plans for the future and uh, prayer points for everyone. Uh, we try to do two trips a year. Uh, 
each trip, 10 days each. It looks like now when we go, we're doing two conferences. It used to be one conference across the 10 days. Now we're doing two, one in the day, one in the evenings. If we could be praying about that, that would be fantastic. We do one trip in the spring, one trip in the fall. Um, the other prayer item and what we're pushing for is finishing the New Testament curriculums. We want to get all of those translated into uh, into Portuguese. We want to teach all the books of the New Testament. We want to try to get that done in the next 14 years. Uh, so that would be uh, a prayer item. And then uh, Professor Mondegron, uh, last year uh, his trip was a little challenging. He self-funds to come over. And um, I think to keep him connected over there, we just, we're going to need a good turnout with the pastors which requires a lot of organization. If you can imagine trying to, uh, this isn't an exact analogy, but it's close. Try, imagine trying to organize the Schaefer Conference from Orlando <laughs> when everything was happening here in Houston. Um, that's one of the big challenges in working with the foreign countries is trying to get these conferences organized and people there at the right times. It's so crucial to have the right people that you can trust on the ground. If you guys could be praying about that, we would really appreciate it. Um, and would really love for Pastor Mondegron to get connected to Brazil. That hasn't happened yet. Right now it's still a little bit of a job. He hasn't made that connection. And would love for him to get that connection and get him down there once a year. So something to be praying about. And if you guys want to talk to him about it when he's here in January, that would be great too. Um, we do, uh, I mentioned Pastor Celso. We're trying to set up, uh, he has a vision for setting up a seminary, and he's been talking to, to me about possible partnerships. Don't know what's going to come out of that. It's all kind of discussions right now, but for sure be praying about that. We do have a building, and it's under construction. There's three classrooms completed, and we got three professors. So things that have some momentum, I would appreciate the prayer. And then, of course, uh, West Houston Bible Church uh, has set aside uh, a line item um, on our budget to support this work. So thank you for that. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and also to uh, your support, I get a question quite often. All you have to do if you want to support Brazil, don't put my name on it because I also do Camparete and they won't know where to put that money. But um, just if you mark it over in the note section, your check, Brazil, or if it's cash, put it in an envelope and just write Brazil, and it'll get sent into that fund. And then finally, I think uh, the biggest prayer request I have is replication. Um, one, one of the, the biggest challenges, it's a blast to go down there and teach. The people love it when I come down there. I love going down there. I mean, it is a blast, and uh, a lot of folks think it's it's work. For me, it's not, uh, but what needs to happen is we need the folks there in Brazil to start replicating, and they need to quit depending on me coming down twice a year, and they need I need men that have been associated with these conferences to start stepping forward and taking these curriculums and moving into the interior the poor areas of Brazil there in the northeast and teaching. There's a lot of churches. 
where this could be done if we just had those men replicate, replicating. So that would be a prayer request uh, for everybody. I would really, really appreciate that. Um, and with that, um, the last question is, what can you do? Three things, right? You can pray. You can go. Always, I've been going by myself now for two years or three so always looking for a partner in crime. Um, the um, And you can give. Uh, those are the three things. Prayer, in my mind, among those three is, is the one that I think has tremendous power. And, um, you know, of course, without funds, we can't do things either. But uh, the prayers uh, are truly appreciated. Um, and I've seen so many of them answered in so many different ways. Because I, I know there are folks here praying when we're down there. And you're maybe you're disconnected from what we're doing, but I'm telling you, when we teach, these people get it. They get it. I, it just as one example, quickly, um, we went down to teach Galatians during the day. I showed you Professor Huberto, and, and he had his men with him. They, they were all uh, men that were coming through a drug rehab program. There was about 40 of them, and we no, it was 50. We, we were intended to go through all of Galatians with them. They had so many good questions, and we had to spend so much time diving into Galatians. We only got through Galatians 2, right? And it was all good questions. They'd, they'd go home, they'd think about something, they'd come back the next day, they'd ask a question, and boom, we'd be off teaching, and we couldn't get through the curriculum. And so, you know, this is the preferred way to, uh, to share this because you know they're getting it. The point is, uh, in that, just one illustration, I could give you a hundred more. Your prayers are being answered. Please continue. Thank you very much. Um, and then, just uh, quickly, uh, this is uh, the church in Panamarim. I've taught there six or seven times, and they wanted to say something to you guys. Three. They're uh, very appreciative of uh, what this church has done for the body of Christ there in Brazil. And um, so thank you very much. And uh, let me close in prayer. I appreciate your time. and sorry I ran a little bit long. Father, just I uh, want to thank you uh, so much for uh, the support that we get here uh, for the body of Christ in Brazil. And uh, as we think of your body, Father, um, Help us to remember, too, uh, the body of Christ around the world. Uh, uh, things that come to mind are China and uh, North Korea, where terrible persecution is happening to to believers, to your body. Uh, we we want to remember these believers, these men and women that are being persecuted there. Um, we thank you so much for the response um, that we got in Brazil. Uh, I want to give you praise because you redeemed us and created us for these good works and not only that but uh, you prepared them for us and so uh, we thank you for this opportunity to serve in brazil to serve the body of christ and we thank you for this local body who supports it in christ's name we pray amen